So good to see you at a public meeting, and a particularly warm welcome if this is uh, the first week that you've been joining us. We're really glad that um, you've started coming to public meeting, and hopefully this becomes a regular part of your week. And to those of you who have been coming over the last couple of weeks, we're really glad that you've committed to this particular hour in the week where we can have the privilege and the wonderful opportunity of meeting together as uni students on campus in a lecture theatre to hear God speak to us through his word. Uh, before we start, I just need to set my laptop up. I'm going to get you to talk to the person next to you. What I'd like you to try and do, particularly if you've been here for the last three weeks, is see if you can remember the titles of each of week one, two and three. Can you remember the titles of each of the talks or broadly what we talked about? And if you, before you get going, if you weren't here for the last couple of weeks, this would be great because the person next to you probably has been so they can give a bit of an update about what we've been doing. I'll give you two minutes to do that. Nice, the primary school teachers among us have uh, remembered this is a good, good way to bring a large group of people quiet. Can you remember the title of week number one? This is an interactive exercise, so maybe any volunteers? Let's go for this side of the room. Oh, please. Anything? Yes? Okay, the topic was success. Yeah, look, I'll give you that. The, uh, the question we were looking at in week one was what does it mean to be successful in life? And I suggested to you that there's two particular things, there's two aspects of this. The first is that we sort of buy into a lie that the world tells us, that sort of feeds, uh, that's fed from our sort of desires to be successful in life. And I suggested to you that the sort of the lie that we listen to, to a lesser or greater extent at various seasons in life, goes something like this. That success is measured by how much of the world I can obtain. And in obtaining more and more of the things of this world, I will become successful and save myself. And you can see there, as we looked at the passage that we looked at, I suggested that the antidote to that lie or the truth that we need to hear that Jesus tells us is there on the screen and goes something like this. Jesus says, stop trying to save yourself by gaining more of the world. Instead, deny yourself and follow me, says Jesus. If you want to be ambitious and successful in this life, then be obedient to his words, says Jesus. Okay, great. Thanks, Lachlan. This side of the room, week two. Can you remember what we talked about in week two? Seek first the kingdom of God. Yes, that's exactly what we were talking about. The topic was, are you anxious for a better life? So we spend a bit of time thinking about anxiety with regard to accumulating more and more of the world. I think sometimes the lie that we buy into is accumulating more and more of the things of this world will help protect me from the uncertainty and future anxieties and life will be more successful. But actually the antidote here that we need to listen to is this, with God as our master, and good and generous provider, you do not need to be anxious for the things of this world. Last week, go back to this side of the room, or anyone, anyone remember what we talked about last week? Absolutely. Are you keen to be a better version of yourself? And we spent some time thinking about what is it that sort of the, the challenge and the danger of being driven solely by our feelings and I suggested that sometimes the lie that we buy into is this, that our feelings ought to determine solely who I am and how I should live. And my success in life will be measured by my ability to recreate a better version of myself. And I suggest that I think Jesus' words provide a really helpful antidote to this because actually the truth we need to keep hearing if we're anxious about ourselves and becoming a better version of ourselves is this. As someone made in the image of God and loved by God, I look to him for rightly understanding my feelings and growing a mature heart. My ambition is to love like God. 
So you can see here that what we've been suggesting over the last couple of weeks that we'll do again today and next week in the last of our series is that as we navigate life in the world, we need to be aware of the various things that we're listening to, the voices that we're listening to, uh, the voices of the world and the voices and possibly the lies that we buy into. Now, I've suggested here that Jesus prevents us presents us with significant alternative ways of both seeing and understanding the world, especially with regard to how we understand it, if you like, through the lens of ambition and success. So today I want to spend some time thinking and looking at this passage that was read to us in Matthew chapter 20, it'd be good if you've got a copy open in front of you, about what it might mean to be ambitious to change the world. I wonder what your ambitions in life are. We talked a bit about this right back in week one. I sort of said, what are you hoping for out of your university experience? I suspect for those of you who are progressing their way through university, your mind has already started to turn about what's next. What sort of job will I get? Where will I live? Which is why can I encourage you that if you're thinking about the less reached and the less resourced, next steps would be a great opportunity to keep listening to the scriptures and the encouragement of other people to keep thinking about these big life decisions that you make. I think for many of us at some point in life, uh, we might be even keen to change the world in some way, a small way, a medium way or a large way. You might have come to university being fairly ambitious to become a much better teacher because perhaps the area of Sydney where you grew up in, just education is not valued highly. And you, you feel the need there and you think, if I go to uni and can become a teacher and go back there, then actually I can improve the education standards of people in the suburb that I lived in or perhaps somewhere else around Sydney, Australia or beyond. You might have come to uni to uh, study some sort of allied health or, medic or medicine because actually you look at the great need for people, particularly given the poor health of some people, and you think, I think I could make a difference. Or perhaps you've come to study business because you're just not convinced that our current politicians are actually running the economy the way it should be run. See, whatever reason you've come to university, at some point our mind turns to the what's next, and sometimes these thoughts about, well, how can I change the world? What difference will I make? comes into our mind. Now, we don't need to look too far to see that there are lots of things wrong with the world. I don't think I need to spend a lot of time outlining that to you. Even in your own experience, if you wake up and read the newspaper or scroll through sort of Instagram or actually not really Instagram, Instagram never really tells me there's anything wrong with the world. Have you noticed that? But if you actually experience the world, then you know there's lots of things that are wrong with the world. So the question then comes to mind is, well, what might my responsibility be in terms of trying to change that. And I think even here as students at Sydney Uni, you're given an aspiration that your course in some ways will prepare you as global leaders in your field. That's the reality of studying at an institution such as Sydney University. That's the way in which the university positions itself in the global sort of uh, tertiary industry. And you are the ones who are now coming through getting the degree at Sydney University. You are being encouraged and being given ambition to be world changers, people of influence, people of change. That's the air that you're breathing, sometimes obviously, sometimes a little more subtly, which is why it's no surprise that the uni's lent into the topic of leadership, what it looks like and how to lead. Well, when we consider what it might look like to change the world, uh, sometimes our ambition can take a grand scale. Let me uh, give you an example. Uh, this is uh, Greta Thunberg. I'm sure you're all aware of Greta Thunberg. She's about your age. I think she's 20 now. Right? And some of you are sitting there saying, wow, she's done a lot from when she was 14, when she started her first one-day climate protest. Uh, she had a particular ambition to bring global attention to the state of climate change action. Apparently, I think when she was 13 or 14, she read a bit about climate change 
and she decided that people in charge weren't listening. So she wanted to raise awareness of the state of climate change action. So she took Fridays off school, apparently, from what I can read, I think it was Fridays, and she went and protested outside her local parliament, just by herself. She thought, well, if no one else is going to take some action, I'm going to try and change this. And what then led from a one-person protest cascaded to seeing tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of school students actually all around the globe protesting for greater climate change action. You may or may not have turned up to one of those protests in the last couple of years. See, it's really interesting that in this case, she wanted to take action on a particular global issue. Now, whatever you think about Greta, uh, her ideology, her actions, her rhetoric, and the resultant outcomes, it's no dispute that she clearly had some ambition to make a difference on the global scale, to seek to change the world. So how should we understand our role and responsibility? Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 20 and the question that Salome, the mother of James and John, comes to ask Jesus. If you recall, a couple of weeks ago, we'd been looking at Matthew chapter 18 about what it means to be great. And I think as you read through Matthew's gospel, you'll start to appreciate that this little section from about chapter 18, maybe chapter 17, right up to chapter 20, forms this little section of the narrative in Matthew's gospel just before Jesus enters Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 21. And so, in some respects, the question that Salome asks about greatness comes at the end of this particular section, just before Jesus enters Jerusalem. And I do wonder whether or not the topic of greatness has been a lot more on the disciples' minds and hearts, particularly as they've gotten closer to Jerusalem. The more times Jesus has said, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, the disciples keep thinking, well, this is the moment where Jesus is ushering in his new kingdom. And so I don't think it's a surprise that questions start to arise about what does it mean to be great in that kingdom. Now, Salome here desires for her two sons to be great in the kingdom of heaven. It's a little bit hard to know. I'm not quite sure. I've spent a little bit of time reflecting on it and very happy to hear your thoughts on it. But I find it a little bit difficult to know what particular image she has in mind as she goes to Jesus with the question. She asks the question about whether or not her sons can sit at the right and the left hand of Jesus. She may have been observant of the way in which other kings and rulers of the day ruled, where they had their most trusted advisors at their right and their left hand, who they then gave positions of power and authority to. She may have been mindful of the narrative in 2 Samuel chapter 16, where it talks about King David's mighty men, whom he seats at his right and his left hand. Or she may have even been mindful of the vision of the Lord that Micaiah sees in 1 Kings chapter 22, of the Lord with people sitting at his right and left side in positions of authority and power. I'm not sure what's in her mind as she comes to Jesus with the question. Perhaps it's just, I want my children to be in positions of power and authority. That is her hope and expectation, a position of privileged power in Jesus' new kingdom. Uh, notice here Jesus' response in verse 22. He does not dismiss her question. He not only accepts it, but then gives us an indication as to the costliness of such positions of power and privilege. Notice what the cost is there. The cost in verse 22 is one of suffering. If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven and if you want to be in a position of power and privilege, then you suffer. You go through suffering and this is what Jesus is just about to do. He asks the disciples, James and John, are you able to drink the cup that I am able to drink? 
Are you, you really think you can suffer the way I'm about to suffer? Notice James and John's response. They say they are both able and willing to do it. Now, because we stand this side of that narrative, we know that that's not actually what took place. But notice that Jesus alludes to what will take place for them in that last part of verse 20, in that first part of verse 23. He said to them, you will drink my cup. Which I think as you read through the stories of the early church, James and John do suffer for the cause of the gospel and for the sake of the kingdom of God horribly in standing up and defending the faith. But it's not the suffering that Jesus undergoes, nor is it the suffering that he's about to undergo. Now, at this stage, as we read through the narrative, you might be thinking, well, I would never ask this of Jesus. I would, I would never, it wouldn't even cross my mind to say to Jesus, can I sit at your right or your left hand? I mean, I've led youth group, I'm okay at it. I've done beach mission a couple of times. But I would never think that that qualifies me somehow to sit at Jesus' right or left hand. And I'll tell you what, if my mother did it, that would be so embarrassing. <laughs> However, notice how the rest of the disciples respond in verse 24. I think that gives us a little insight into the fact that all of the disciples were actually thinking what Salome had the courage to ask. The disciples in verse 24, or the other ones, are indignant that James and John, well, Salome, their mother, on behalf of them, would actually even bear broach the question with Jesus. But I suspect they're all thinking the same thing. When Jesus' kingdom comes, maybe it'll be me who sits at his right hand or his left. Maybe I'll be in that position of privilege and power. I don't think many of us like to admit, but I think at some times the question arises, well, will I be great in the kingdom of heaven? Will God be pleased with all of my endeavours here on earth? As I live a godly and a faithful life, as I go out, do some evangelism with EU Street, as I head to Beach Mission, as I turn up to annual conference every year that I'm here at the EU, if I consider doing a ministry apprenticeship and I might even work as a, a church pastor, maybe the Lord will grant me greater power and privilege in the new kingdom. I suspect at some point we all desire to be people of influence and power, not just perhaps in the kingdom of heaven, but at least in this world. And we desire that sometimes more than we know. So where is it that we go wrong here? Well, I suspect the lie that we buy is something like this. I think the lie that we're told and the lie that we buy into is something along these lines. The world changes, those who are able to change the world, are those in positions of privilege and power. I think sometimes our perception of the world is that those in the positions of power and privilege are really the only ones who get to change the world. So if I have a desire to change the world, which I think is probably a good thing, Therefore, I need to somehow manoeuvre myself into such a position and then I can enact change. Now, I want to suggest to you that there's a half-truth to this lie and most great lies, dare I say that, are built on half-truths. It is true, I think, that those in positions of power and privilege can bring about change in the world. So, let me give you an example. Let's say uh, I stopped speaking on Matthew chapter 20 and we had a discussion about changing one of the laws of our land. Right? And let's say I managed to persuade you uh, genuinely, that we decide that we all really thought we could drive on the right-hand side of the road. And we were unanimous in that, right? And so, after today, when you get in your car to go home, we've agreed that that now becomes the law of the land, and so you all faithfully drive on the right-hand side of the road. I'm thankful I won't have to do that because I'm getting a train home, but just let's say you did, right? There would be absolute unmitigated chaos. You'd all get fined by the police when they caught you. 
you'd cause countless accidents and you might injure people and you might... What I'm saying is we don't have the position nor the power to be able to change the laws of our land. Who are the people who do that? Well, actually, it's the people in positions of privilege and power, and that's our parliament. Now, in our system, we've rightly, democratically elected them to do that. We've given them that responsibility. We've given them that position of the power. And yes, they're the ones who will actually be able to change certain laws. So I want to say to you, even though I think this is the lie we buy, it is genuinely true that those who are in positions of privilege and power can change the world. But I think the lie that we buy into is that it will only that we will only be able to change the world if we get into that position. And I want to say I think Jesus tells us something very different. So Jesus corrects this lie by speaking truth and his truth is something like this. We seek to change the world by living like Jesus and putting others before ourselves. It doesn't require you to be in a position of power and privilege to change the world. Now, we know that Jesus in his life and actions radically reshaped and changed the world for all eternity. What do we read in that part of Matthew 20? This last part of Matthew 28. No, Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be, not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus here in his death and resurrection gives his life as a ransom for many. The global problem that needed fixing was that all of humanity was bound in sin and destined to die. Now, for the Son of God, through whom and for whom the world was made, to look out on his creation and to see that it's caught up in sin and enslaved by the devil, that meant that a world-changing event needed to occur. And as such, the Son, coming in the person of Jesus, demonstrates his power and divinity in his command over evil spirits in his life. He casts out demons, he heals the sick and he raises the dead and goes to the cross to die. And in his death, he pays the ransom price that you and I were unable to pay. He dies the death that you and I deserve. We deserve it because we're caught up in the kingdom of darkness under the headship of Adam, caught up in the rule of Satan, and Jesus is the only one who can break that. We can't do it ourselves. We needed Jesus to do it, and that, friends, is the world-changing event that was needed. And it's already taken place. Notice how Paul describes what Jesus does in coming as man from the Son of God when he comes in the person of Jesus. Uh, here we're in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, and Paul would write this, Notice what Paul writes about how Jesus gives up his privileged and powerful position. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We need to remember here that in Jesus, he willingly and voluntarily gives up his privilege. He gives up his power and he gives it up for the sake of others. All of humanity, he becomes a servant for you and I. He comes to serve by dying and rising again, which means his life, and de his life death and resurrection is a world-changing event for everybody, all of humanity. 
the moment where God becomes man, dies on our behalf and offers us new life in right relationship with God. If you're here today and this is brand new news to you, if you've never heard this, can I encourage you to talk to the person who brought you, come and have a chat chat to Sam or myself afterwards and say, "What, what are you talking about? Please help me understand how I might rightly live in that right relationship with Jesus and how his death and resurrection enables me to do so. Now, knowing this, it shouldn't surprise us, therefore, that Jesus expects his followers, his disciples, of which there's many of us in the room, to live likewise. We are to live following Jesus' example and teaching. And while we will not be the solution to the world's sin problem, no, Jesus has already done that, Jesus still expects us to be like him in becoming servant and slave for others. Which is why he says there in verse 25, just a little bit earlier, Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. See, Jesus' words here are once again radical and countercultural. In a world where might ruled, What does Jesus teach his disciples? Don't be like the rulers of the other nations, the Gentiles. Their rulers wield power and are authoritarian, generally speaking, over their subjects. Why do they rule in that fashion? Well, lots of reasons, but I think invariably it's because they're driven by their own evil desires. They don't rule well. Their own evil desires for wealth, for power, for status, for prestige and for control. Jesus says, do not be like them. Notice what Jesus says, if you want to be great, become a servant and a slave. He just completely overturns the power structures of the day. He claims that the greatest and the first will be the equivalent of the servant and the slave, often considered the last in the power dynamic of the first century. Jesus claims that the least, the most insignificant, The powerless, so it appears, these are the ones who become great in the kingdom of heaven and these are the ones who in doing that actually bring about a great change in the world. So if you want to go about changing the world, how then do you do it? Well, I want to suggest this is actually really difficult on one hand. It's really difficult to go against the wind, swim against the tide, resist the culture of the day. It can be really difficult for us to hear to become a servant and a slave. Because our current often worldview of the map, sorry, our worldview, our map of the world, is just really deeply entrenched in the way in which the world views power and authority and what it means to change the world. We do need to keep reorientating the way in which we understand the world and what it means to bring about change in the world such that our thinking lines up much more with Jesus' way of thinking and we keep resisting the temptation in our own evil desires to change the world for our own sake. So here, I think, friends, can I encourage you once again to examine your heart. Consider the desires of your heart in the light of Jesus' words. Ask that God might convict you, that he might realign your heart, that it's orientated after his, that you might be more willing to give up things, that you might be more willing to become a servant and a slave for others. Now, there's three ways or three particular challenges that I want to just address to finish. There are three questions. 
I'll put them on screen and we'll work our way through them. First question. When you are placed in a position of power, how will you use that position? I think the reality is that for many of you, having finished your study here at Sydney Uni, you'll go and head off into generally well-paying and often influential employment. At some point, you'll end up working with other people, making decisions that affect others, and not surprisingly, those decisions will affect others in large numbers. I met with a graduate only three years ago, uh, sorry, who left three years ago. I caught up with him at a wedding a couple of months ago. I said, so what are you doing? He said, I'm basically redesigning all of the electrical systems for the entire Sydney metro. Well, I thought, okay, you're three years out of uni. You have a significant position of influence and power. I said, I hope you don't get it wrong. You can imagine if he doesn't do it properly, every time we get on the metro, we all get electrocuted, right? That's bad. It's okay, he's a good engineer, it'll be fine, right? Now there's checks and balances and it's not completely there. But do you see, he's three years out, he's already been given such a significant responsibility. Generally speaking, the trajectory for many Sydney Uni graduates is within several years, you will end up in significant positions. The question we have to keep asking ourselves is, when you end up in this position, how will you exercise the power that you have been given over other people? You might lead a team of six to eight. You might be responsible for hundreds of employees. In what way will you make decisions? Will it be to benefit you and your own career advancement? Or will it be in genuine service of others? For in some, if not many cases, you may start to realise that your desire to serve others and bring genuine benefit to them is actually starting to be contrary to the goals of the company you're working in. So two observations here. What I don't think Jesus is saying, what I don't think Jesus is saying is never be in positions of power and influence. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. What he is saying is if you are appointed to them or when you are appointed to them, firstly, know how you will behave in them. Have a plan. You can start thinking about it now. This is what we're doing. We're looking at Matthew chapter 20. We're listening to Jesus' words about how we should behave when it comes to power, privilege and influence. Know how you will behave and don't be like the other rulers. In this case, as Jesus would say, don't be like non-Christians. But rather, follow Jesus' example and use your position as a position of service. But secondly, and I think this is more important because sometimes that first one's really tricky to work out, you need to be willing to give up that position. And the reason why you need to be willing to give up the position is if that position causes you to be unable to live like Jesus, better that you give it up for the sake of your faith. Doesn't mean don't go into it. But if it gets too difficult and is too much of a tension on your faith, you need to be willing to give it up and go and find another job. So first question or challenge, when placed in a position of power, how will you use that power? How will you exercise it? Second question, how willing are you to give up your position of privilege? How willing are you to give up your position of privilege? Now, I think as you start to make future life decisions, uh, you will start to be tempted to make yourself look more impressive. Climb the corporate ladder, whatever it's going to be, earn more money. And the attitude of our hearts is what's on view here. And Jesus, I think, expects us to make decisions not just based on what we desire, but on serving other people. So in considering work, will you consider the demands that a new job might place on your relationships, your relationship with God, with your family or the household that you're living with, or with your church family and the roles and responsibilities you've taken up there? 
Now, you might think, well, I don't need to worry about that. I've got another three years before I end up in hopefully full-time work. I want to say, no, no, you can start thinking about that now every time you get offered another shift at work. Are you willing to give up your position of privilege? In considering work, will you consider the prestige associated with your job? Are you going to preference one job over another because to other people one job appears better or more significant? Oh, you work for one of the big four. Ooh, impressive. All the business students know what I'm talking about, right? Is that what's in your heart? Is that why you want to go and work for the big four? Because that's actually what you want people to think of you? And initially you say, no, 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 I'm not thinking like that at all. I'm saying you just it's between you and the Lord, right? Consider your heart and just be honest with yourself. Thirdly, in considering work, will you consider moving to a less reached and less resourced part of the world? For the sake primarily of reaching others with the gospel and serving Jesus' church in that part of the world. Are you willing, if you're doing education, to give up the position of working in, say, an independent school here in Sydney, getting paid above what most other teachers get paid, to go and take a job working in a government school in a country area? Your friends and possibly your family will say, you're crazy, why are you doing that? There's no career advancement in doing that. Do you you see the wrong way of thinking, right? In what way might you serve people? In what way might you serve others? Sure, it might be a backward career move in the eyes of the world, but actually it might help you become more and more like Jesus. At that point, you're just going to have a decision to make. Do what the world says and advance my career or become more like Jesus? Third question, challenge. How willing are you to let others get ahead of you in life? See, when we consider the desires that we have for success and ambition, And seeking to change the world, Jesus' words here give us pause for thought. Because one of the questions we need to keep asking ourselves is, how willing are we to let others get ahead of me in life? From the little things. So let's say you're a diligent driver when you're driving down the road, not just because you're on your P's, but because you're a Christian, right? And you're sitting there and a lane merge is coming up and you've faithfully merged well before the sign. And out of your left side mirror, you see the person accelerating down the left lane. There's a bit of a gap between you and the car in front. They've spied that. What do you do instinctively? Accelerate or brake? See, if you accelerate, that belies your heart, that you're not satisfied that they're going to get ahead of you, right? Whereas if you you brake, whereas if you brake to create a little bit more space to allow them to safely... All I'm saying, do you see how it's such a little thing, right? But it sort of goes a little bit to the desires of our heart. Now, what I'm not suggesting is whenever you come up to a lane merge, you just let everyone go in, right? (laughs) Because otherwise you'll just sit there and everyone behind you will pull out and go around. I'm just saying, drive sensibly, right? But do you just see how in the little things sometimes it betrays our heart? But even in the more significant things, how willing are you, for example, to sacrifice some of your time in your academic studies, actually, to help someone else in your class? Some of you, particularly in seniors, you might already know who's already starting to struggle in some of your courses. You're already thinking, gee, the workload's starting to ramp up. I've, I've really got to do the study that I've, I assume you've set aside time to study, right? I've got to go over my lectures and review my notes. And, but how willing are you to give up some of that time for the sake of helping somebody else? How willing are you to help them, even if it actually means they do better in the course than you? Thought about that? See, I think if you're unwilling to do that now, the driving illustration, but also helping others with the course that they might even get a better mark than you, 
why do you think that it will be easier when you finished uni and you're out in the workforce and you and your colleague are up for promotion? Why don't you just say to them, you take the job? So I think if you haven't practiced it, firstly, you won't be in the habit of doing it, but it's not going to get any easier. See, what is it that Jesus says? Verse 26, whoever will be great among you must be your servant. Whoever will be first among you must be your slave. See, brothers and sisters, we need to not just be willing to serve others when the need arises. I think we also need to actively seek out ways in which we can be serving others. Not just waiting for the time to come up and then go, oh yeah, serve, I've got to serve, kick that into gear. No, look actively for ways in which you can serve others. This is what Jesus commands us to do. You don't need to wait for a greater need arises or for a more significant opportunity to change the world appears in front of you. You can do that this afternoon. You can do it for the rest of the week. In fact, I hope you'll do it for the rest of your life until the Lord returns. See, Jesus gives up his place in the heavenly realm that you and I might be ransomed from our sin and restored back to relationship with God. This then becomes the foundation and motivation for all of us such that our ambition should be to seek to live like Jesus, putting others before ourselves and in doing so, radically changing the world. Someone's going to come and pray for us now. Thanks for listening to today's talk. The Evangelical Union, or EU, is a student club on campus at Sydney University that seeks to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. To join us or to find out more, please visit sydneyunieu.org.